This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. I'm Morris Thurston. And today we have a special treat, one I think you'll find both informative and fun. Our speaker is Eric Eliason, professor of folklore at Brigham Young University. Among his many interests, Eric is an expert on perhaps one of the best-known and well-loved LDS general authorities of his era, J. Golden Kimball. We all have heard of the J. Golden Kimball stories. Well, Eric is author of the book, The J. Golden Kimball Stories, which was published by the University of Illinois Press. If you enjoy this podcast and have not already subscribed to Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, we urge you to do so. Just go to our website at www.dialoguejournal.com and click on the subscribe button. Follow the directions. This podcast is a recording of a presentation Dr. Eliason gave to the Orange County, California chapter of the Miller-Eccles Study Group, which meets monthly in our home. My wife, Dawn Parrott Thurston, introduced the speaker. When uh, I was a new convert to the church, I was baptized in 1960, and it wasn't long before I started hearing stories that were very, um, they were amazing and, and, uh, and very thrilling. I heard stories about the three Nephites and how they uh, were picked up as hitchhikers and sat in the back seat of cars of people who picked them up and, and cautioned uh, people about the importance of keeping a year's supply. I heard, <laughs> I heard about all kinds of three Nephite stories, as many of you have too, and I've heard, heard about all kinds of Hollywood celebrities who were really Mormons and nobody else knew about it. <laughs> and as time went on, I realized that most of these stories that had intrigued me so much as a new convert to the church were really part of our Mormon folklore culture. Tonight, our speaker has made Mormon culture and Mormon folklore his life's work. Uh, Dr. Eric Eliason has, uh, is professor of folklore at BYU and has published a number of books and articles related to folk and cultural traditions about societies all over the world. Here's what you should know about him. First of all, he traveled here from Utah on a motorcycle. You can see his motorcycle parked out in front. Uh, He lives in Springville with his wife and four children. He served as a chaplain for six years in Afghanistan and the Philippines and at Arlington National Cemetery. And he's written a number of books on a whole variety of subjects, uh, such as hunting and fishing traditions in North America and black velvet art among others. just They all sound so very intriguing. I'd like to be able to have an opportunity to read all of them. But he's here tonight because of his expertise in J. Golden Kimball. And all of us who have been in the church have grown up on J. Golden Kimball stories. And he's probably one of the church's leading experts on the topic. 
he has some books for sale over there at $20 a piece, and there's more, far more in the book than he's ever going to have time to tell you tonight. I'd like to turn the time over to him now. Thank you for that very gracious introduction, and it really is an honor to be here, and I don't say that lightly, having looked, knowing, read up a little bit on the history of this gathering and the kind of people that you have come here and who you're having come in the future, and I wonder, what am I doing in the midst of these people? And, and it's a, a, little, a little nervous, but uh, very, much, uh, very much an honor. And I can vouch for, for Kirby when he comes, too. He's a f- friend of mine. We were in the same, same ward and still get together for, for lunch every once in a while, and uh, actually was one of my sounding boards for when I was working on this book. And uh, he was uh, a great help with that. Well, tonight what I thought we would do is tell you a little bit about Jay Golden Kimball, who he was. Uh, Tell you a little bit about folklore and the study of folklore and how he fits into that. And we'll, of course, tell some Jay Golden Kimball stories. And maybe if you have a favorite, you can uh, help me out with that a little bit. And also want to end with a a discussion of what this may all all mean. Um, Nobody forces us to tell Jay Golden Kimball stories. It's not part of the correlated curriculum in any way. And yet we still still tell them. And you you couldn't say that Jay Golden Kimball is anything else but a part of Mormon culture. And it's something that uh, we maintain uh, on our own. Well, Jay Golden Kimball was one of uh, Heber C. Kimball's sons through one of his 47 wives and if uh, I believe he holds the record I talked with Catherine Danes who's the expert on this and she seemed to to, to agree and uh, with his 47 wives uh, they had nearly 200 children and not a bastard among them the Jiggle and Kimball would say Despite his uh, Mormon aristocratic background, he kind of grew up in a kind of genteel poverty. I mean, because being the son of Heber C. Kimball and 50 cents would buy you a cup of coffee. And in Jay Golden Kimball's case, it actually probably did from time to time. But um, so he had to go to work at a very young age. And he worked uh, as a mule skinner, as a cowboy, uh, doing, you know, backbreaking manual labor and... uh, Spent a lot of nights in the in the field and sort of picked up some of the habits that come along with that kind of kind of work, uh, coffee drinking, uh, cussing, things uh, such such as that. And he actually he wasn't particularly active in the church. You might even have said he was a a Jack Mormon in today's usage of the term. Though in his day it might I don't know if you know the history of the term Jack Mormon in the 19th century. It actually referred to somebody who was not a member of the church but acted like it. Now it's the other way around, and, but, uh, but he was, was today what we might have been called a Jack Mormon, except he went to Brigham Young Academy and heard a speech by Carl Mazur that just electrified him intellectually and spiritually, and he decided to get himself right with the Lord, get himself right with the church, and he was sent on a, a mission to the southern states. And, and during the difficult time, has Patrick Mason been here to talk to him about his book? Yeah. Yeah, right in that time period in the southern states where there was a, a lot of violence that he was exposed to. And later on, as mission president, uh, he, he went back. In 1880, he was called to be a, a general authority, and he served from then to 1938, 
when he was at 85 years of age, he died in an automobile crash. Now, any of you who uh, know, remember Thomas Alexander's book, uh, Mormonism in Transition, the years of J. Golden Kimball's tenure as a general authority are almost exactly the same years that Thomas Alexander talks about as this great moment of transformation and change in, the, in Mormonism and uh, how it's lived and how it's experienced by its members. And to me, that's kind of key to understanding J. Golden Kimball and who he is and how we remember him, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, he, was very, he was known for being tall and uh, gaunt, and he talk, talked with a, uh, a high-pitched, squeaky voice that uh, it used to be the case, and when people would tell a J. Golden Kimball story, it was almost required that you would adopt the J. Golden Kimball persona for a little bit and tell it in the high-pitched, squeaky voice. This has kind of fallen out of favor, for which I'm thankful, because I, I would be too self-conscious to do that, I think. Um, though it is interesting that this has... has um, this became part of the tra performative tradition of J. Golden Kimball stories to do this squeaky voice thing because out of that emerged several one-man plays by several different actors, some of whom are not, or I think most of them, have, some of them have passed away now, but there used to be some hard feelings between the actors who would put on the one-man shows of you know, A Night with J. Golden Kimball of, of who had the idea and who had the right to do this and uh, I would suggest, as part of an oral folk tradition, everybody has the right to do it if, if they want to. Is you can't you can't copyright stuff like that. But uh, one of the things that people often ask me about Jay Gold and Kimball stories is, so well, are any of them true? And I say, well, absolutely, they they are all true. All of the stories that I'm going to tell you tonight were truly told by real live Latter Day Saints. I didn't make a single one of them up. I didn't invent any of them. I didn't write any of them. These are all truly told stories by Latter-day Saints that have been passed on uh, over the years. Now, of course, I realize that's not what they mean when they ask me, uh, is, it, is it true or not? But which is a nice segue into talking a little bit about what a folklorists do as a, as a profession. Uh, the thing that folklorists are interested in and what we spend our time studying are the customs, traditions, the narratives, and the stories that emerge out of particular groups of people. So um, things that occur at traditionally in face-to-face -face situations uh, among small groups. So what distinguishes folklore, say, from history, isn't it's the truthfulness of it, or the, the, the truthiness of it, I guess is... As uh, what Stephen Colbert would say, is, uh, but the, what distinguishes folklore from other types of culture is its medium, is the way it's transmitted, and informally, face-to-face, -face, uh, traditionally, rather than through the official organs of the, the, of the, the state or popular or church culture, uh, if you will. And uh, now... I get calls from time to time from well-meaning colleagues in the history department who want me to think that I'm the expert on things that people believe about church history that aren't true, because that's the way historians use the term folklore all the time, is to refer to things that people believed happened in the past that, that didn't. And I try to patiently educate them every time that, no, it's folklore isn't things that aren't true. As a matter of fact, just because it's folklore doesn't mean it's not true. Many of the things that are folklore, the things that we do in intimate settings and face-to-face -face, traditionally are the very most important things the, 
that we hold dearest to us, not the things that are necessarily uh, spurious or funny, though those things uh, are, are also part of it. So just as a, an, an example I like to use, and we were talking about this at, at, at dinner, is that just, just because something is folklore doesn't mean that it's not true. In Polynesia, they have a tradition of passing on genealogical information through learning to sing songs and reciting your genealogy back many, many, many generations. And this is uh, on many of the islands of the South Pacific. This is a very important tradition, and people have been doing this for, for generations. And, and um, they have a particularly well-developed culture of how to, have, how to do this. Now, recently with genetic testing, they have gone to uh, and tested the ancestry of a lot of people who do this, and these genealogies are more or less spot on. I mean, that doesn't mean every single, that doesn't mean every story I'm going to tell you tonight is the same thing as what a historian would call as true, but don't, don't, uh, don't discount it. Um, a lot of the, the, the stories that I've drawn upon and I've collected from my own students, but also I've got to do a, a shout out for the, uh, my predecessor, William A. Wilson, or Bert Wilson, who's a folklore archive at BYU and Utah State University. Both have been collecting Mormon folklore for many, many decades now. Uh, student collectors and classes at, at BYU and Utah State University will collect um, stories as part of their assignments and folklore classes which then go into the folklore archive and a lot of the stories from in the in the book are, are from that. Now another disclaimer I should have to make about about this particular topic and for most of you this is the first time you've ever seen me and your first impression of me and how I usually talk is going to be drawn from me talking to you tonight about Jay Golden Kimball. And I promise I really don't cuss a whole lot in, in my re real life, but here, you're, here I am going to be standing up to, and, and this is going to have to happen. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm sorry, and I, if, that, if that offends you, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't, wouldn't have come. But it, there's still there's enough of the you know, traditional Mormon in me that I really actually do get a little nervous uh, bringing this up, and I do in front of my, my students uh, as well. And uh, though, a, a, when, when I talk about it, and it's my own dumb fault for picking this as a topic, I guess, and I'm really blamed on myself. Um, and, but if you know anything about Jay Gould and Kimball, a lot of people know him as the, the cussing apostle. Well, if you call him the cussing apostle, you've given him a promotion. He, his highest rank was actually as one of the seven presidents of, of the 70. Um, now, it's interesting that Jay Golden Kimball and one of his uh, good friend, B.H. Roberts, now there's an interesting combination for you, they were actually quite, quite close, uh, were part of the faction of the seven presidents of the 70 that liked to emphasize the part of the Doctrine and Covenants that said the seven presidents were equal to the 12. <laughs> that didn't go over so well, and if you look at your local, your ensign and see how that's hierarchically arranged... <laughs> Uh, the, the part of the Doctrine and Covenants that says subordinate to is, is the one that gets uh, the emphasis interpretation uh, now, as you can, you can see. Uh, so that was one thing they had in common, but they also had um, some difficult personal and family situations that, uh, that both of them dealt with. And uh, maybe it's a cliche to say this, but uh, a lot of good comedians, people who have a good way with humor, are actually drawing a lot on, on a lot of personal pain. And, and Jay Golden Kimball was certainly uh, no exception to, 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 this, to this tendency. 
uh, very few of his, his uh, children stayed active in the church. As a matter of fact, one was involved in a tawdry love triangle uh, that involved an attempted murder that played out through the front pages of the Deseret News and the, and the um, uh, Salt Lake Tribune. It actually led to one of the, the jokes about him, the, the stories about him, which was probably true. And a, a person uh, came up to him on the street and rather cruelly, while this was going on, said to him, well, hey, Elder Kimball, I heard uh, that you're having some trouble with your kids. And he says, well, yeah, I'm in pretty good company, too, because the Lord is sure having a lot of trouble with his kids, too. <laughs> so... Um, and his, his wife, bless her heart, was uh, not always, she, you know, Jay Golden Kimball's popularity in 50 cents could buy them a cup of coffee too. I mean, if Jay Golden Kimball had maybe found his, his uh, role as an entertainer in the secular world, he would have been well compensated. He didn't make any more money than any other general authority just because he was, uh, just because he was, was, was famous. And um, he was had several bad financial investments that he made, and they were in uh, constant uh, financial struggles, uh, which um, uh, led to tension with him and his wife, and perhaps a tendency to actually seek out being on the road where he got the accolades from the uh, members of the church who who liked him so much. As a, I mean, even the the pool halls would empty out. You know, when Jay Golden Kimball came to, to town to speak, and uh, normally they wouldn't, and they, the church quit advertising which general authority was coming to speak because <laughs> if it was Jay Golden Kimball, everybody would be there. If it was somebody else, maybe they wouldn't. And this, this, led, this led to hard feelings, and so they, they, they kind of did away with that. But anyway, so God, I've, I've managed to hopefully say some informative things here, but I've, I've managed to stay, get, a, get away from the topic of cussing, which I was going to talk about, but maybe subconsciously was trying to get away from. Uh, but the, I went through this you know, rigmarole of being self-conscious about you know, the cussing part of it, and uh, to a group of uh, senior c- uh, citizens in, in Orem, who were kind of you know pa- impatiently say, okay, okay, get on with it. Yes, yes, we know. You, you start telling telling the stories and and afterwards they said, look, you know, you're you're kind of a young guy. You don't you don't realize this, but I mean, shoot, back in the you know the early 20th century, we cussed all the time. It was no no big deal. And and it wasn't until later that this became an em- emphasized sort of thing. And one of them said, yeah, I was a convert from Connecticut. Never heard so much cussing in my life till I moved to Utah, <laughs> and with all these farmers and. Uh, so, um, so there may be. So I think, even within living memory, there is uh, evidence of a transformation in cultural attitudes uh, towards this. And uh, well, I think the the what gave me permission in the end is I, I did a presentation on Jay Goldling Kimball at uh, Utah Valley University a few years ago, and the sweetest, nicest lady told this Jay Goldling Kimball story. I can't remember what it was, and then the punchline was a pretty hard cuss word, harder than usually you would find in a Jay Golden Kimball story. And I was like, ma'am, do you, do you usually speak that way? And I, she said, oh, heavens no. But I'm quoting a general authority, so it's okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, all right, so I'm quoting a general authority. And that, that Jay Golden Kimball liked to, uh, to say that, uh, he, you know, hell and damn aren't cussing, that's just geography. And uh, he would say, um, you know, you know, it's easy to quit cussing. Hell, I quit years ago, and um, 
and uh, he get sometimes would be the general authority in charge of cussing that missionaries who had a problem with it would get sent to, and that's when he would tell them that, you know, that, that's, oh, you can quit cussing, it's easy, I, hell, I quit years ago. But it's interesting, the hell and the, the dam show up in Jay Gold and Kimball stories almost ubiquitously. They do now, anyway. And you, it's almost, it's become a motif or an element in the narrative that almost has to be there. In some ways, I don't think this is really fair, because... Uh, Jay Golden Kimball, I'm sure, probably cussed over the pulpit a couple of times. But you do. But considering who he was and what his position was, that's going to define him forever. And so he cusses way more in the stories we tell him about him, tell about him, than he probably ever did in in uh, in, in in real life. Um, this is interesting too because cussing in Utah. It is, you know, well, hell and damn, is that even really, really cussing? I mean, it, it tells us something about uh, the culture of Utah that these would be considered uh, cussing as, as well. Now, uh, some of you may remember, uh, my students tell me this is still around, but uh, somewhat, but it was a big deal when I was a teenager. Oh, my heck, was the quintessential way of cussing in, in Utah, which is actually a double euphemism. Uh, in the 19th century, Mormons would say, oh, my hell as a euphemism for taking the Lord's name in vain, for which for Mormons, according to surveys I had one of my graduate students do, is a worse form of cussing than even some of the more scatological swear words are for, for, for Mormons. That bothers Mormons more uh, on, in, in general that to hear that as a cuss word than, 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 than other things. So, anyway... Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of his, his stories, since we've already segued into it a little bit. And I'll throw some out that hopefully give a, a flavor for the thing, and then we'll, we'll talk about them a, a little bit. Um, well, Jay Golden Kimball, like I said, was a popular speaker, and people would come uh, from miles around to hear him speak. And... Uh, then, like still sometimes now, after a general authority spoke, a lot of people would want to, you know, get in line to sh- shake his shake his hand when they were done. And uh, I, gosh, I feel so sorry for the general authorities who 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 have who have to put up with this. I mean, I, I you know, people will come and says, "Well, Elder so and so, do you remember me? You know, we you had you know dinner at my house forty seven years ago, and <laughs> and." and I've, I've, you know, what are they? What are they supposed to say? Yeah, no, yeah. I've, I mean, I mean, because the, the members look up to him so much, but I, do they really remember every single member? That would that would be a hard thing to do. Now, of course, as a general authority, you're supposed to be a great example of patience and tolerance and love for the for the members. But Jay Golden Kimball had a had a hard time with this sometimes, and a and a a sister after standing in long line. And, uh, waiting her chance to talk to Jay Golden Kimball after he had spoken, um, had a letter clutched in her hand and said, Elder Kimball, I'm, I'm really hoping you could do something for me. I, uh, my sister and I, when, when uh, she was alive, we fought all of the time, and we said some really mean things to each other. And, but I always really, really loved her and appreciated her, but I never really said that. And now she's dead, and, and it's, it's, too, it's too late. And Elder Kimball, you're getting old, and you're going to die pretty soon. And I was hoping maybe you could, you know, take this letter that I wrote and give it, give it to my sister. And she said, "Look, lady, when you know when I die, I'm going to be 
busy and I have a lot of things to do. I'm not going to have time to go looking all over hell for your sister. <laughs> and, um, now, Jay Golden Kimball used to curse the invention of the telephone because he, when, when this used to happen, when something like this would happen and he would realize, oh no, I'm in trouble. And this is one of the great, one of the, the ambiguities that I think is what makes Jay Golden Kimball stories funny. One of the things I think that makes the Jay Golden Kimball stories funny is that you don't really know, is, is did he blurt out something that, what, did he didn't mean to? Or did, was this a calculated thing that he did, did on, on, on purpose? And uh, at, the, at the core of most humor, according to Elliot Oring, who's a folklorist and one of the foremost theorists of uh, folk humor in the United States, is that that kind of ambiguity is at the core of all, of all humor, is that there's multiple possible interpretations inherent in everything that, that, that's said. Um, so when J Elder Kimball realized, or Uncle Golden, or J. Golden Kimball realized that he had gotten in trouble, he would be able to jump on the train, get back to Salt Lake, tell his version of events to the brethren <laughs> before word trickled that back to, to Salt Lake. Uh, but after the invention of the telephone, of course, the calls would be ringing off the hook, and the brethren would be waiting for him at the train station, you know, with their hats in their hands, concerned look on him and their face. And, you know, give him a give him a lecture about, you know, you know, Golden, you can't you can't be doing this. I mean, the members look up to you. You're supposed to be an example. You're you need to be you need to be patient. And and his response to this was always. Yes, yes, you're right. I, you know, I, I got to repent. I've got to do better. Sometimes Jay Golden Kimball is made out to be some sort of Mormon rebel. This isn't. I don't think this is a fair characterization either to his real life or to to the stories that are told about him in the way he's he's remembered. He's not a a critic or a cynic or any way. He's he's in the in his life and also in the way he's remembered in the in the folklore. He's absolutely true to the gospel and the church. Uh, he's just a human being who has weaknesses and, and frailties, and he is willing to repent, you know, uh, uh, immediately. It's like uh, I, I, I'll never go to hell. I repent too damn fast, is what he would, would, would say. And as a matter of fact, that story, his nephew Spencer W. Kimball actually used that story in a miracle of forgiveness. If you remember that. The, um, Spencer W. Kimball didn't use all of the same words that his <laughs> uncle did in, in telling that story, but you still got the uh, the gist of it. And and Spencer W. Kimball said that you know this may be told as a humorous story, but there's an element of truth to it. I mean, there's at the core that's you that's the idea is that you repent immediately and continuously, and and that's that's what you need to do. So anyway, he's back. He's at the train station. Brethren to give him a lecture about how he's got to do better. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. So next time he speaks at a conference, he um, big long line of people form up, and a man comes up to him. He's with a really concerned look on his face and says, Elder Kimball, I'm, I'm really, really concerned about something. Oh, really, brother? What, what is it? How can I, can I help you? He says, well, you know, I know that some of what I read in the Bible is, is figurative and allegorical. Other things I read in the Bible are meant to be taken literal, and they actually happened. And I've been reading in the book of Jonah, and I just don't know what to make of it. Is this being swallowed by a whale thing? Did that really actually happen? 
or is that like you know it says in the New Testament where it's the the sign of Jonah and was it just a symbolic allegory sort of thing or was it real? Now, J. Olin Kimball's first reaction to this was, I cannot believe this guy is wasting my time with such an idiotic question. This has no bearing whatsoever on anybody's salvation, and I'm tired and want to go home, and all these other people want to come shake my hand, and he's holding them up. But he realized, okay, can't do that, can't do that. I've got to bring myself back to, so, okay, brother, tell you what, you know what, I'm getting old, I'm going to die pretty soon, and maybe when I get to the other side, I can uh, talk to Jonah and ask him about it. And the man isn't quite satisfied and says, well, what if, what if Jonah doesn't make it to heaven? And Jay Golden Kimball says, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> so, mm. um, another famous one. Now, some of these stories, and, and these ones are examples, in, in what folklorists call a legend cycle or a cycle being all of the stories told about a particular person or event, in this case, uh, the folk hero of uh, Jay Golden Kimball. And uh, in case you were wondering, if you go to the BYU Folklore Archives and look up who you might think are some of the candidates for the most popular Mormon folk hero, yep, Porter Rockwell's there, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young are there to a certain degree, but they're so much part of the official culture uh, lore that they're maybe not as well represented in the folklore as they are in the, uh, the historical and official lore. But J. Golden Kimball outnumbers three to one any other Mormon folk hero figure as far as being um, a popular, uh, popular folk hero. And I've totally lost my train of thought and wondered where I'm going with that. I was talking about, uh see. Oh, yes. Some of the stories told about J. Golden Kimball... In, the, in a legend cycle, and you'll see this in any legend cycle or in the world about any particular uh, character, some of these stories are pretty much transferable from one character to another. And a few details will change, and uh, it's become a story about somebody else. I went to dinner once with a fellow who was a specialist on the Jesse James legend cycle. Uh, he was a historian of Jesse James, and I, w we were, I was talking about Butch Cassidy's stories with him and mentioned the one about how um, the two stories about Butch Cassidy, where Butch um, is uh, on the run from uh, the Pinkertons, and he goes into this old Mormon guy's farmhouse, sees a horse, he steals the guy's horse to get away, but feels bad about it, so leaves this big sack of treasury bills that are worth a hundred times what the horse was, and leaves a note on there, hey, sorry about the horse, hope this can you know, make up for your loss. And he's, I told him this story, oh yeah, yeah, same story, it's told about Jesse James. Uh, another one, uh, um, Butch Cassidy hears about a poor old woman whose, uh, the bank is going to foreclose on her house if she doesn't make the final payment, so Butch uh, you know, feels bad about this, so goes to the bank and robs the bank, and takes the money to the lady uh, who takes the money to the bank and pays off her, her mortgage. And then Butch Cassidy goes back to the bank and robs the bank again and takes the money for himself and, and rides off. <laughs> Same story told about uh, Jesse James as well. Same story, all, both, both of these stories told about a certain figure in English folklore. Any guess as to who it might be? Robin, Robin very good. Yeah, so uh, the, the folklorists have a term for this. It's called a, an oikotype or it's with a story takes on the characteristics of a particular, uh, particular culture. Um, you, all you need to do sometimes is just tweak a few little details, 
And it suddenly seems very much like that culture's property and, and, and they own it. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, three Nephite stories and uh, f- uh, food storage. Um, in the 1950s, there was a very popular legend all throughout the country of the vanishing hitchhiker. A couple picks up a hitchhiker beside of the road who tells them that the end is nigh. And you know, in the 1950s, A, people are driving cars on the interstate highway system, which is kind of a new thing. And B, for the first time in history, you don't actually have to exercise a whole lot of faith in scriptural literalism to believe that the world might be destroyed in a fiery cataclysm because of atomic weapons. So this this had a lot of resonance at at the time. And of course, the vanishing hitchhiker would say, you need to prepare for the, because the end is nigh, turn around how... How did you know this? But when they turn around, he's vanished from the backseat of the car. Broad American story. You only need two details to add this to make it seem absolutely Mormon. Do you know what they are? What? Well, maybe there was three of them. Yeah, that works. Uh, you need to say, you need, the end is nigh. Get your food storage ready. And he vanished. He may have been one of the three Nephites. Those little two details makes it seem like a totally Mormon story. Now, some, a lot of story, J. Golden Kimball stories are, are, are like this. Uh, there's one, for example, where J. Golden Kimball is the, um, the, uh, a tour guide for a visiting dignitary from, from out of town, which should already tip you off that this problem isn't, probably isn't historically true, because I don't think this, the, you know, if anything else about the, the uh, folklore is true, this wouldn't be the guy that they're putting forward as their, the church's PR face, I don't think. <laughs> Um, so he's driving a, a, guy, a guy around the, the, the Salt Lake City. So oh, yeah, there's the Opera House. Oh well, you know we have a much bigger one in New York City. And you know it pointed out. Uh, oh well, here's the Capitol Building. Oh well, you know the one in, in, in uh, New York's a whole lot bigger. And uh, then they come around the corner, and the visitor sees the temple. So, oh my goodness, that's magnificent. You know well, what's that? And Jay Golden Kimball says, I don't know, you know, damn thing wasn't there yesterday. And <laughs> making it seem like it was no big deal. Now, this is very easily transferable. And also, I think this is interesting, too, because as Latter-day Saints, our, our emic or internal view of what's significant about Salt Lake City and its architecture is that the, the temple is sort of the crown jewel of, of, uh, of what's there. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, when he visited Salt Lake City, he wrote about it. Somebody was talking about Frank Lloyd Wright in the discussion before, and I only caught that his name was mentioned. But um, he, when he came to Salt Lake City, he saw the, the, his remarks on the temple were that, oh, it's just this kind of conglomeration of Gothic and Victorian, you know, mishmash put together and not particularly significant one way or another, but now the tabernacle, that is the most significant piece of architecture west of the Mississippi in the United States, was Frank Lord Wright's view. So sometimes outsiders will see, see, uh, see different, uh, different things. But, so there are a few of those in Jay Gould and Kimball's stories, but the two that I, that I the, the, the few that I told about the, the, the telephone and the, 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 um, the people waiting in line to see them, these don't have cognates or oik types elsewhere. As a matter of fact, most of the stories in the book are stories that don't lend themselves or really don't have variants outside of Mormon culture. They are very uniquely uh, our, our own. 
um, though how much any of them really uh, connect to things that Jay Gould and Kimball actually did is kind of hard to determine. Um, now, Jay Gould and Kimball is what I like to call a, a performer hero. There's lots of different ways you can become a, a folk hero. Uh, um, you can do it in battle, like Porter Rockwell, uh, essentially, through, through your deeds. Uh, or you can do it, you can be, become a hero through your own skill with language and use of words. And J.J. Golden Kimball is certainly an example of this. He was known for his wit. Though in scouring his sermons, which are, are, are funny and full of uh, uh, dramatic pauses if you, you listen to them, and uh, you, the kind of cheeky you know, irreverence and you know, rascally sort of temper, that, that shows up in, in tone, at least, in the, the oral narratives told about them, there is basically no overlap whatsoever between the stories he told, or his sermons, and the stories told, told about him. They're almost completely, uh, completely separate. Um, so we have in the corpus of Jay Gould and Kimball stories, the cycle of stories told about him, one of the probably the most unique and distinctive and well-developed Mormon cultural artifacts that, that, that we have. I mean, not any one of them is neither, you know, is, you could take or leave, but add it all up together, this is probably the most significant piece of, of Mormon literature, uh, folk literature certainly, anyway, that we have. Now, I mentioned before that I'd come back to this issue of Mormonism in, in transition. And some of the things that were happening in this time period between 1880 and 1838, uh, of course, the end of polygamy, the, the dismantling and disappearance of any semblance of uh, uh, united order uh, type living, the church's um, abandonment of it, any theocratic aspirations that it might have, all of these things began to, to disappear. Uh, the Transcontinental Railroad brought more and more cultural influences into Utah from the outside. Uh, Mormons were more interested in being seen as a modern worldwide church. And uh, this is a nice segue into Reed Nielsen's presentation. When, when he comes, I'm sure he'll mention this as at the uh, World's Fair and how much that was important to the church of we, want, we have arrived now. And there wasn't a whole lot of focus on on covered wagons and bonnets and things like that. That's kind of not what we want to be, be, be seen, seen as now. So anything that was um, associated with that time maybe had begun maybe to be downplayed in favor of presenting us as a, a modern, sophisticated, a respectable people, not a wild-eyed, prophetic people living in the wilderness uh, that's not really the image that we want to want to present anymore. And uh, Jay Golden Kimball was of that previous era. And one of the and one of the things too for a cultural group to maintain its distinctiveness and uniqueness is it's got to have some of what what anthropologists call boundary maintenance devices. How you know whether you're in the group or or not? Are you willing to live the law of consecration? Are you willing to live the law of plural marriage or not? This is how we know whether you're really serious about being one of us, these disappear. They, how, how do you know who's, who's in and who, who's out? How do you know who's really, really committed? So it's perhaps no accident as these things started to disappear, other things started to come to the fore 
as things that defined us. The word of wisdom went from being a suggestion to being a commandment in this very same time period. It wasn't actually until 1950 that you would specifically be asked whether or not you drank coffee on a Temple Recommend inter- interview. And so, and that's, it's pretty much been set in stone since then until, I don't know if I'm, if I'm maybe I should be careful saying this, but am I reading the tea leaves right that it's okay to drink Coke now? Did you guys, yeah. is that, is that bait, debate solely not? Yeah. It's over, huh? Cal- well, I'm sorry. I forgot how far away I am from Zion and, uh, out here with you guys, and we we know about you. So, but uh, I, I had a a friend in graduate school who was a, a Mennonite, and uh, we had a lot of fun with each other. We we were the uh, he came up with the idea that we were both the affirmative action representatives of minority religions, beginning with M. And uh, uh, he said all the time, uh, it's funny, he's, it was, as a minute, he said all the time people asked him, hey, where's your name tag? Well, where's the, where's the other, aren't there supposed to be two of you? Where's your bicycle? And, and I'd say, oh, yeah, I know. I, get all, I got it all the time, too, on my mission. You know, where's your wide brim hat? And, you know, uh, so we got, uh, we, ha- we had some fun being um, uh, confused for each other. But uh, he said to, um, he told me about how there was. If you know anything about Mennonites, they're 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 pacifists. I mean, that's one of their big boundary maintenance devices, if 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 you know. And he mentioned that at one of their their schools, they had this radical professor who was suggesting that in some situations it might actually be defensible to use violence in self defense. And if this was this was huge. This was a big theological issue for the Mennonites of you know what to do with this guy, what to make of his his writings. He was well respected. You know, it, but this sort of kind of went right to the core of, of what it meant to be a Mennonite. And he asked me, so Eric, you know, what is the big, what big theological issue is at the core of, you know, of Mormonism? I thought about it for a second. Well, you know, it's probably got to be whether or not Coca-Cola is prescribed by the word of wisdom or not. That's the big issue. That, that, and I guess that one's not anymore. That's not, not the case anymore. I guess it's been, been resolved. But anyway, so Jay Golden Kimball was living through a time where there was lots of members going through the process themselves of how am I going to deal with the, the church's new word on the word of wisdom when I've been drinking coffee all my life. It's not that easy to just up and quit drinking coffee. And so you can see how members of the church might enjoy um, hearing stories like, like this one, where... Uh, Jay Golden Kimball used to have a restaurant in town that he liked to sneak off to because he people he thought people wouldn't recognize him and he could order some coffee there and uh, not be seen and so he's snuck back in his booth sipping his cup of coffee and a woman comes by walks by his booth and does a double take he comes back and says Elder Kimball is that you drinking coffee and he said ma'am you're the third person today to mistake me for that SOB <laughs> Now, there's two kind of com- two competing schools of thought in, in folklore, and one is is that oftentimes in a folklore tends to be conservative, in that the stories that you hear in a particular culture reflect values, attitudes, and concerns of a previous time. That there's kind of an, an inertia to them that they're behind the times for a little bit. Now, another. Uh, Another argument among folklorists is on the exact and the opposite side of this is that no, nobody's forcing you to tell these stories. These stories wouldn't continue unless they served some vital current need 
right right now. I mean, I mean, uh, a written document, a book, or something can lay on a shelf forever, and who knows what its cultural significance is, or who's, who's read it or not. But an oral narrative, if people are telling an oral narrative, and you can send folklore students out, and they they collect six different versions of the same story, and they all from people that don't know each other. You know you're onto something. This is some story that strikes a nerve that it's it's resonating in in some way. So Jay Golden Kimball's stories tell us, according to this argument, more about who we are and what our concerns are than uh, than many other things might do. And so it's one of the arguments for why folklore is important to study because if you really want to know what a people are about, what their concerns, their fears, their values are, look at their their stories because. If they didn't reflect their concerns and values, they disappear. They just quit telling. Nobody's forcing them. Uh, they'll they'll uh, they'll do do something else. So what to make is uh, in some ways I think Jay Golden Kimball's stories prove both of these. I mean they emerged from and are specific to a specific time, s- certain set of concerns, but uh, they we wouldn't keep telling them if they didn't still uh, have some sort of some sort of uh, some sort of resonance. Now, another thing that was happening at the time as uh, in the church, you know, there were several, uh, the church began to emphasize uh, uh, swearing. That didn't sound right. Began to emphasize. (laughs) (laughs) Swearing is an issue that needed to be controlled. They, uh, you know, stricter adherence to the word of wisdom. Another thing that was happening at the time was a lot of new technological developments. Uh, telephone was one example that Jay Golden Kimball had a problem with. Another time he went to the, as a visiting dignitary to the uh, woolen mills in, in Provo. And uh, he was wearing a big long scarf. And uh, as he was being asked to inspect the woolen mills, he leaned over the, to look at the machinery running away. It was all very fascinating stuff with you know, whirling cogs and belts and pulleys and things that caught the end of his scarf and pulled him up into the machinery Swung him around, hitting him against the ceiling, and then threw him across uh, uh, across the, the shop room floor. And his assistant ran up to him and said, Elder Kimball, Elder Kimball, speak to me, speak to me. And he says, why the hell should I speak to you? I just passed you five times. You didn't say a word to me. And so, so, so yeah, these, these are a few examples, I think, of, of, of how... how Jay Golden Kimball's stories at the time may have emerged as something that was particularly, uh, particularly uh, resonant, but why do they persist today? And, um, and, and in some ways, if it's true, what I've been saying, that, that folklore and Jay Golden Kimball stories are a reflection of who we are, holy cow, what do these stories tell about us? Now imagine you know, there's some sort of apocalypse, and the only thing that's left in the world of Mormons and who we were is my book on J. Golden Kimball stories, <laughs> all right? Or the folklore archives. And so, the, the, you know, um, uh, archaeologists from Mars come and they land and they, oh, we, there's this lost civilization and we got to understand, you know, what they're about. And, you know, after they've looked through the rubble of our buildings and found that the basketball court is bigger than the chapel, then they go, ooh, I see what's the most important thing to these people was basketball. And uh, the secondarily, they must have had some religious significance, just like those people in Mesoamerica and their ball courts. Ooh, must be a connection, maybe. But anyway, the, um, off track a little bit, the, with, uh, what yeah? What what does that tell about us? I mean, what, if, I mean, are Mormon are are Mormons 
cantankerous? Are they? Are we? Are we sharp with people? Are we impatient? If anything, I know at least in Utah, the exact opposite is is the the, the stereotype. Like I said, I can't vouch for you guys here in California, but <laughs> in, in in Utah anyway, we have there's certainly the, the I think the self perception and certainly the perception by outsiders is very quickly that Mormons are syrupy sweet and ultra patient and eager to help, even perhaps to a sort of a sickly sort of saccharine sort of sort of way e- even. Um, uh, I remember on uh, hearing an interview on the radio with a journalist from France who was sent here from Le Monde to here to, yeah, Zion's in, is everywhere now, right? It's a whole of North and South America. But it is sent to, to Utah to... Um, to um, to go to this state that is run by a cult, and they thought, just thought that was fascinating, right? You know, this what's, what's this is going to be like? You know, this is going to be weird. And then he and he said it was weird, but it was in exactly not the ways that I expected. I mean, you know, these people let me into their homes. They answered they answered all these questions I had for them, even like personal ones. It's like I'm a journalist. I wouldn't have a journalist in my home. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to answer their, their their questions. They, they drove like an hour out of their way to, to take me places. Now, of course, this may be our, you know, there's, there's something deep in our DNA that doesn't want to get driven out of our homes in Missouri again anymore, I think. <laughs> and so we have this, we're, anytime any, we, we're going to be nice to, to outsiders to show them that we're, we're civilized and, and, and nice. And I think that's still, still part of us. And so it might have been that. But also, I think, I mean, you I mean, you take people to enough Sunday school lessons and listen to enough general conference talks, and you might actually start trying to be Christian some and and and, and be nice. and And I think that's something that is 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 valued and seen as important uh, to uh, a degree that it influences uh, the perception of the culture. Another time, I had a a friend of a friend of mine from New Jersey came to the the Sky Room, the restaurant at BYU, when we were eating together at, at the Sky Room. And we were getting, you know, had a really good conversation going, and this really happy, smiley waiter would come up and keep asking us, you know, if, if we need anything more, do, we, is, do you like the food, okay? And my friend was just getting annoyed, and I, I could tell he, and he says, look, Eric, if we were in New Jersey, I would just tell this guy to buzz off. I mean, and leave us alone, we're having a conversation here. But I know I'm in Utah, and this is BYU, and I just, I can't do that. It'd probably crush this guy, and he, you know, he would feel bad all day, all day and and, and so it's and and he went on from that to tell a story about how he was lost in downtown Salt Lake and was trying to find the Utah Arts Council and asked a construction worker if he knew where it was and the construction worker said, "Gee, I, I don't know, but here you can use my cell phone and call and see if you can find it." And he was like, "In New Jersey, people don't do that. You, know, you don't ask. Your construction workers won't give you their their, their their cell phone." So what is so if hopefully I've given some evidence that. At least to a degree, there is a sense that Jay Gold and Kimball is in some ways opposite of how of uh, how we perceive ourselves and how we're, we're perceived. Now, um, there may be an ex- explanation for this. Um, in many cultures uh, and their narrative traditions, there are what are called uh, trickster figures. You may have been some of you may be familiar with this. Um, rare rabbit among African Americans, coyote among the uh, Plains Plains Indians, were figures who were would um, would uh, 
stories were told about them, and they were usually funny and and hilarious, but also oftentimes they were they would transgress the boundaries of what was was allowed. And so at first, when folklorists looked at these, they thought that oh, these are people you know blowing off blowing off steam. These are people talking back to the culture. These are stories that are resistant to the the dominant culture. And um, but then they realized, no, wait a minute. No, Coyote is a central figure in the pantheon of the Plains Indians, and he's a he's a big deal. What's going on here is the values of the society are being being underscored through examples of their violation, and punishment happens because of the violation for this. So uh, that might be it. Might be a stretch to shoehorn Jay Gold and Kimball into the trickster motif. Well, for one, usually in trickster figures, the the um, the the violations of the society's norms are spectacularly flagrant, and they and Jay Golden Kimball, they're not. He's still pretty much inside the the, the circled wagons, so to speak. And uh, he, even in his cussing, I and I'm, you really don't get much worse than the hell or damn. I mean, there's plenty of other options that could be part. Of the Jay Golden Kimball uh, 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 folklore vocabulary uh, that aren't, um, but so he may not really fit as that. But another another suggestion has been that one of the reasons that people tell stories is that oftentimes what stories allow us to do is to do things that we, if we actually did do them, would get us in trouble. And so we all, we can vicariously experience things through stories, and to a certain degree have the, the satisfaction of it without actually having to do it ourselves. So we may not be able to cuss or tell off the uh, the uh, anti Mormons on the train, but Jay Golden Kimball can for <laughs> us in in our stories for, for us. I mean, we, we, just because we are being nice doesn't mean we don't want to punch the guy in the nose. I mean, I remember I, I wanted to slug people so many times on my mission. But I was like, if there's one thing you can't do as a missionary is just punch somebody. And evidently I got the reputation for not punching people. So the mission president sent me all the guys that all the other mi- mission, missionaries had slugged. And so these, these were my companions. It's like, it's Elder, I've got, a, I've, got another, I've got another hard case. Oh, jeez. Because he knew I wouldn't punch him. So, but what I, that didn't mean I didn't want to. Uh, so, and, and I remember, too, the, fir- the first time I heard Jay Golden Kimball stories was actually on my mission. Somebody late at night, I brought out this CD. <laughs> CD and he put it in a, I want to play something for you. I never heard of Jay Golden Kimball before. I heard one of these... Um, these performers who had done a one-man show where he was Jay Golden Kimball. And, you know, in my, you know, my young, tender, innocent, missionary Mormon mind, I knew what cussing was. It was over here. And I knew what general authorities were. They were over here. And, and I mean, that there would be, I, I thought this was an anti-Mormon plot to discredit the church. <laughs> there was really no Jay Golden Kimball. This is all just made up. You know, and, and, uh, um, but... Uh, later on, I came to see how he, how a figure like that might be be useful. It's kind of a, a release valve for tensions that that might might uh, occur. And I don't know if I want to go this far, but one of the reviewers of my book, I suggested this 
and he was not that um just so you know in in the world of folklore studies generally uh, mormons are probably better known in the field of folklore than any other discipline except for perhaps um american religious history there's a pretty close contender but you take your qualifying exams as a as a folklore PhD at Indiana University, you might well have a question on the three Nephites. Uh, you, uh, the, everybody who is a specialist in American humor at the American Folklore Society that I know, uh, and some people I don't know, know who Jay Golden Kimball is. And one of these guys was a reviewer for my, for my book when I suggested that maybe, just maybe, there's some connection between Jay Golden Kimball out there vicariously doing our cussing and coffee drinking for us, and the whole very Mormon idea of people being able to do things for others vicariously through, you know, baptisms for the dead, things, things like things like that. And, and I, I sort of presented this as, you know, this this is kind of a stretch. Maybe but he's all over. Oh no, you broke the code of what Jay Golden Kimball is about. This, this explains, you know, this is this is why he's important to Mormons. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, so I, I made a little bit more of it in the book, but I, I still not really willing to have the confidence in my own idea here as that being much, being much of anything. Well, I have yammered on for quite some time, and I'm sure some of you've got uh, questions or maybe a Jay Golden Kimball story to tell, or is there one? I know there's some I've forgotten, and that uh, you probably your favorites that you want to hear, you want to hear. So I'll throw it open to questions or stories or whatever people like to do. Um, the issue of Sunstone that has a cover story by Mike Stevens on um, passive aggression oh, uh-huh. among Mormons. Oh, uh-huh. Uh, Dude, I didn't come out before I wrote my right. book. That's I think right. it would. <laughs> it fits perfectly because yeah. saying, you know, they query students on their, on their um, interactive style. And the more Mormon you are, the more you're avoidant. Oh yeah. Avoid confrontation. And I, I, I would think people would really love this idea of this character who, who doesn't back down, who says what he wants to say. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know, we can't do that. But gosh, it's, well, it's kind of like part of. I mean, I mean, here we are. We, we believe in Jesus and believe in turning the other cheek. But man, we love Porter Rockwell blasting away <laughs> and, uh, at the, at, at the, uh, you know, the enemies of the church and. At least we do at scout camp anyway. I don't hear about him much over the pulpit. But anyway. we, we didn't hear much about him in beehives. <laughs> do any recordings survive of his voice? Yes. Uh, uh, there are several. Yep. Why didn't you bring some? I did. But it's on video cassette. <laughs> we don't have it. And over the, the technology is, I guess, I mean... Morris was making fun of me for being a folklorist and being old tech, but, but uh, that's, that's all I have. <laughs> Any other questions? Do you, is Bert Wilson still alive? He sure is. Yeah. It gets me is I went to the Army in 65, and five years previous to that, I was in Provo. I never heard of Jay Golden Kimball until I ran into Bert Wilson. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a class of folklore. Yeah. It was a short story. Somehow he just couldn't yeah. resist telling some of these stories one day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I, te- I I have some some of my students. I've never heard of him. Some of them, oh, know one or two stories. But I mean, when you have you know a, a, a culture made up of millions of people, that's that's enough people to have some pretty well developed traditions that are still not known by everybody. 
So it's some people think, oh, well, Jingle and Kimball stories are, are dying out. Well, maybe, but I guess maybe not. I mean, they, they sure seem to be alive and well from my vantage point as a folklorist. They, I, can, I can get them collected very, very easily, given my students an assignment to go, go find some. But uh, are they a smaller size of the part of the church experience proportionally? Maybe so, but they're still very much alive, alive and kicking. Mm-hmm. What's your all-time favorite Jay Golden Kimmel story? My all-time favorite? Oh, maybe some one of the ones I already told, but you've given me an opportunity to tell one that I like to tell that I've forgotten to tell, so I'll tell that one, <laughs> tell that one anyway. Uh, and one of the ones I like about this one is, is this is an, uh, another example of one that's, that's borrowed from another culture, and it actually fits that culture and that time better, but it still works pretty well. And this is the one where... Jay Golden Kimball's riding on a train in the, in the south when he's mission president there or on his, in some versions when he's a missionary. And three guys come and get in and they sit in his, his cab uh, with him. They pick up somehow on the fact that he's a, a Mormon and one of them makes a snide comment, you know what, there's going to be way too many Mormons around here. I'm, I'm uh, going east to get away from the Mormons. It's, you know, his buddy's not very creative. All he can think of is to say, oh, yeah, I'm going north to get away from the Mormons. And the third one's, well, I'm going south to get away from the Mormons. And Jay Golden Kimball says, well, why don't you all just go to hell? There aren't any Mormons there. <laughs> it works great. That's a Jay Golden Kimball story. I wish we could claim that as one of our own, but the likely origin point of this is actually in the uh, 1850s in, in New England. Which is, of course, the um, the uh, you know the heartland of our Puritan forefathers, and in the 16 and 1700s, the most Protestant part of the country, most most Protestant part of the world, in, in some ways. But after the Irish potato famine, and uh, immigrants from Ireland began streaming into New England, so that you have the situation that now today there's only one other state in the country that has a majority religion other than Utah, and that's Rhode Island. That's about 55% Roman Catholic. And the, because the uh, Irish immigrants, uh, now Catholicism is more predominant, well, to the degree that any religion is predominant in this least religious part of the country today. In the past, there was huge demographic shifts that were happening very quickly that turned this uh, very Protestant part of the country into a very Catholic part of the country. Now, the original version of the story is a nun gets on the train. You know, three Protestants get on the train, you know, say, I'm, you know, going east to get away from the Catholics, I'm going west to get away from the Catholics. And the sweet little old nun says, why don't you go to hell? There aren't any Catholics there. Now, this makes a whole lot more sense because in the J. Golden Kimball version, the three guys get on the train, get on the train and notice he's a Mormon. And it's like, well, what, were his garments showing? I mean, what's... You know how they did the celestial smile. You know what was the, what was you know what was this, how did they know? And uh, okay, there were some Mormon missionaries in the South, but we're not talking like demographic upheavals that that are, are taking place. So it still kind of works for the Mormons, but it actually fits a lot better in that that earlier earlier context. Uh-huh. I, one that just for some reason struck me funny, and I'm sure it did not originate with him either. Is is maybe a variation of that one, where he said that uh, if I had a house in St. George and a house in hell, I'd rent out the house in St. George and live in hell. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, it's funny, supposedly that's, nobody loves to tell that 
story more than people from Dixie. So it's like, <laughs> but according to the the lore, this is one of those stories where he got in trouble and had to go back to the, you know, the brethren are waiting for him on the train and don't, you know, the, don't, don't offend the people in, in southern Utah, but nobody loves it more than people from southern Utah. I mean, because how cool is that? that? That, you know, we live in, in a place that, that, yeah, that's even tougher than hell. That makes us, uh, us, us pretty cool. Which is also in the southern Utah, too, is a context for G, uh, G. Golden Kimball used to, you know, Heber J. Grant swore, too. It wasn't just me. Oh, really? We'll prove it. Well, we went, we went down south to southern Utah during the drought, and, and uh, we saw carcasses of dead cattle and sheep everywhere as our, as our car drove by, you know, farmers, uh, 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 farmyards, and, and it, was, it was just terrible. So I said to, you know, I tell you, this, this proves uh, Heber J. Grant swore, and um, so I looked out and I saw these dead cattle, and I said, it's a damn shame, isn't it, Heber? And Heber said, yes, yes it is. So see, he swore. So, some of the best ones, some of the best Jay Golden Kimball jokes serve. At, where Heber J. Grant plays the the straight man. Uh, Heber J. Uh, Jay Golden Kimball goes over to Heber J. Grant's house and bangs on the door and says, "Heber, some sob stole my lawnmower, and I came over to here to see if you had it." Uh, so, so, and probably the most famous one is where he they they give they give him a script to read. President Grant gives him a script to read because of the, his previous problems with cussing over the pulpit, and he goes up to read his script and I say, "And what? Hell, Heber, I can't read this damn thing." And over the now to to I'm guessing that nobody. I'm guessing nobody remembers anymore now, but at the time, this would have been doubly funny to Latter-day Saint audiences because one of Heber J. Grant's favorite stories to tell was how, through perseverance and effort, he used to have terrible, terrible handwriting, but he got better and better and better at it through, through practicing, and his handwriting got really good, and he kind of told the story over and over again. And so you, with that added a little piece of knowledge, that story becomes you know all the more all the more funny. I can't I can't read in, 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 in any anything he said. So yeah. The story I heard of Edward growing up, and I think my mom told me this, and she said that he spoke at a state conference in Brigham City and was chewing him out for one thing or another, and he said you people are just not fit to live with the pigs. And then he got back to Salt Lake, and uh, I don't know if the we're beating back or not, but anyway, the brethren told him, you, you can't say that in the state conference. You need to go back and uh, get that straightened out. So he goes back up there and he says, uh, I told you I told you previously that you weren't fit to live with the pigs, but I take that back. You are fit to live with the pigs. <laughs> 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 I love it. Uh, my mom... My mom, uh, I never put this together until I heard you talking, but um, my mom used to, you know, she didn't, she gave me a take once about Heber J, or about, about J. Golden Kimball, I wish I knew where that was, but it's probably the only take she ever gave me, and I think she kind of liked him, but she suffered from migraine headaches, 
and she was of the opinion that the only way to fight her migraine headaches was drinking coffee, and she actually did that. And she had some collisions with the bishop and her temple recommend, but uh, maybe that's why she liked Jake I, I would I, I can see why, yeah. yeah. You say that you sent your students out to collect folklore. Uh -huh. What exactly do they do? Uh, one of the assignments in my class is to uh, to to collect folklore if if at all possible in its naturally occurring context through stories that their roommates tell, uh, their parents tell them a proverb, does grandpa know a Jay Golden Kimball story? I live pretty open-ended as far as what kind of thing they can collect, but uh, if sometimes I'll nudge them a little bit and say, hey, I'm, you know, see if you can find this. You know, you don't have to turn in that, but if you can, and if I nudge them a little bit on Jay Golden Kimball, they'll, they'll turn in Jay Golden Kimball stories and they'll, they'll find them. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that they that uh, I it's exciting to see is how student how quickly students can find folklore all around them. It's not something that you go into a musty library and dig up, but it's part of the lived experience of their everyday lives. And their roommates are telling jokes, and their moms are telling personal experience narratives, and all these genres of folklore that we learn about. They can they can collect collect from all around them. And they continue to find stuff that's fresh, new, or not? Yeah, um, you know, the preacher says there's nothing new under the sun, but there some, sometimes it, new twists and things will come up, and some and it's really neat to be kind of on the uh, on the, the you know I hear all the latest Mormon rumors before <laughs> before every, every, everybody does, and matter of fact, I I heard through the grape the grapevine that. Gladys Knight had joined the church before it was officially announced, and I oh yeah, and you know, Steve Martin joined the church too, and yeah, so for a little while I didn't about a week I didn't believe it. I'd categorized it in that oh those famous people joining the church stories, which is a whole nother lecture by the way. We could talk about that and what that what, what that all that means, but but uh, um, so yeah, I guess that that was something I heard new before before it uh, before it actually came out. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, off of that, I was wondering too how much we. I served at Temple Square, uh -huh. and I think that's where I heard a, a lot of folklore, Mormon folklore. Um, and then, I mean, if you think about it, that mission has 200 missionaries, and then those missionaries get sent out for four to six months throughout the United States and come back, and we see hundreds and hundreds of visitors a day and I'm wondering how much of that we're spreading ourselves. <laughs> oh my gosh, and all those different countries that like, all the simple like choir missionaries come exactly. from, are they all going back to their... And at the time yeah. I served there we had over 54 different countries represented um, and they're yeah. coming in every six weeks, they're coming and going and I'm just thinking, wow, that is so much folklore that's yeah. being spread. And a lot of it we heard from um, senior couples <laughs> that come in. But also a lot of the information too is also how I've heard about a lot of the yeah. things that were changed in the church that we no longer talk about today. So yeah. I mean it was interesting to hear a lot of the thing, information that um, went on in the church that no longer it's, yeah, it's it, hush hush. But it was uh, also interesting to hear this folklore uh, too. Well it's interesting that I mean different kinds of folklore resonate in different segments the demographic um, famous people joining the church that's much more popular among 
Mormon youth. I mean, it, it's really, and um, some thinking I've done about that. I mean, is what what kinds of you people? What why? You remember 1987? YouTube did the album The Joshua Tree. Some of you may remember. When I, I remember very much hearing that. Oh my gosh, this is it. This is their secret coded message that they're going to join the church, right? Joshua Tree, Joshua Tree National Monument, Southern Utah. That's their song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What could that possibly be but a cryptic suggestion that they're actually seeking? And where are they going to find what it is that they're looking for? Where the streets have no name was the name of the song. What could that possibly be referring to but Salt Lake City where the streets have, have no name, right? So um, we were all convinced that you know, any minute now this Irish rock band was going to be announcing that their, their uh, conversion to the church. Um, now, of course, you know, on one hand, we Mormons are a strange, weird, backward cult, and we're also... The new religious movement is the first major world religion to emerge in a long time. And we're, yes, we're both of the, we're all, we kind of span the spectrum all of all of this. And we want to, at the same time, we kind of want to have our cake and eat it too of being a peculiar people and unique and distinctive, yet also be respectable. And so if these famous people that we like and respect are thinking about being Mormons, that sort of validates us. Uh, that might be one of the reasons why this is going on. Another reason is, is that the, my gosh, you know, the strength of youth says, you read in there, it says, be careful about what you, music you listen to. But it doesn't, it doesn't name any names. You know, why don't, can't you tell me that I'm not supposed to listen to this, these bands are okay and these bands aren't. They haven't provided that kind of information. But if you'd have us, well, you know, if you two is about to be joining the church, they're probably okay to listen to. You see, how, how, I, I think that might be one of the psychological things that was going on, at least back in my day when that was... Something I cared about, yeah. Uh, what direction do you think uh, folklore, Mormon folklore in particular, is going to go in the future? Uh, the g- excellent question, and I think our sister missionary just suggested one way to go. The, the biggest place where it has to go and needs to go is to the international church. We need to do more studies of, of what, how, how, what are the customs, traditions, and stories of people around the world. And how are they experiencing their Mormonism? How are they telling stories about it? Uh, you, you look at what Mormon folklorists are doing, and I'm just as guilty with my book. Is it's still A lot of it is pretty um, stuck in the days of when Mormonism and Utah were pretty much the same thing. And the Mormon culture region was where 90% of Mormons live, and that's not the case anymore. And what's happening out there in the international church as far as Mormon folklore, that's a field that's white all ready to harvest to use maybe an appropriate metaphor but so we don't we don't know yet we have got a few few things are, are, are trickling in but we need to know more yeah oh marmon yeah what uh, what do we uh, what do we know about uh, ways of uh, gauging or measuring uh, the continuing prevalence of folklore, uh, folklore, especially Jay Golden Kimball or any other specific kind of folklore across time. I don't think, as far as I know, there isn't any way to tell uh, whether Jay Golden Kimball stories are now more common or less common than they were a generation ago. That sounds like a great question for a sociologist. Well, it is. uh, You know, if I were at the other end of the (laughs) lifespan. 
But I, yeah. I think a lot depends on on the answer to that because um, the prevalence of of a given kind of folklore with a given kind of uh, message or given kind of motif, like yeah. a given kind of such folklore yeah. uh, is indicative of uh, different kinds of changes right. in, the, in the society. And unfortunately, folklorists, we don't have the, the toolkit to make the kind of generalizations that would be impressive to a sociologist as far as that, as far as that goes, I think. And so we're kind of a less just kind of a impressionistic kinds of things. but. Uh, if, you know, were we uh, better sociologists, we might be able to answer some of those questions. Well, yeah, in terms you, of, you were, you yeah. were, I could see you were doing your best at that when, yeah. you, when you were talking about how the, uh, the, the Mormon culture was changing in the first part of the 20th century yeah. from the 19th century. First part of the 20th century, Mormons are trying to live down the 19th century mm -hmm. and get American respectability. Mm -hmm. So they don't want some kind of hit going around cussing. And exactly, yeah. And, uh, um, a little more angel, a little less beehive. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but I, you know, and, and you should write a book. You should, that'd be a great title for a book. Since you mentioned it, <laughs> since you mentioned it um, my sense is that that going into the second half of the 20th yeah. century, and we get more into the angel again, mm -hmm. uh, the, there ought to be a change in the in the folklore and the significance of it. Well, not just all folklore, but yeah, maybe all folklore. But I'm thinking especially again of the Jay Golden Kibble stories. Mm -hmm. um, I have a sense that during this kind of retrenchment period that I see in the second half of the 20th century, that uh, that the uh, even the the uh, what, what might be called the Mormon establishment mm -hmm. and the church leaders are less tolerant and enthused about Jay Golden Kimball stories because they in a way vindicate transgression and we don't want any of that in, uh, in this age of, uh, of retrenchment. You know, I I wonder, but then again, there's some. There are few better tradition bearers and receptacles of Mormon lore than general authorities. As a matter of fact, I, the last chapter of my book is dedicated to just J. Golden Timble stories told by general authorities. And you'd be surprised which ones you actually see in there telling J. Golden Kimball stories. Well, I don't know that and, I would, uh, but the, the, yeah. because the question is, again, prevalence. Uh, when do they tell them? Under what circumstances? Yeah. And, uh, and that that's a great question and just not equipped to answer it. So. Yeah. I'm going to bounce off that too. Yeah. And I think that was one of my curiosities is that I didn't hear folklore from my, probably my age group that was more of the Jay Golden Kimmel and the, these kind of like charismatic characters. They were more the, you know, oh, the saints are so great, all this. But when I talk to the senior couples, a different age group, a different genre, that's where I got more of these Jay Golden people and these more. And so I'm wondering if it's a prevalence like, too, if, if it's my generation that they didn't want us to hear those uh, stories because it does vindicate that, that, that. Well, I think something I discovered very much is that the uh, Jay Golden Kimball is something that you are, I guess, sort of like the temple. You're introduced into it at a certain age, and you don't tell Jay Golden Kimball stories in, in primary. Matter of fact, somebody actually invited me to come. 
uh, seriously, it's not. I mean, and, and when that that story I told of being a missionary and hearing it for the first time—that's about yeah. when most people first start hearing them. You don't. They're stories for adults by adults. It's part of being a grown-up Mormon is knowing Jay Golden Kimball stories, and and I somebody I got invited to go to speak at a ward campout, and I asked the person who was. Are you sure? Are there going to be kids there? Yeah. Are you sure this is a good idea? No, no, never mind. Sorry. Uh, um, maybe we'll have you some other thing for not some other thing. Conference. Pardon? Not not general conference. That's part of the point I was trying to make. We we, we get these yeah. maybe on less formal occasions, but yeah. even the general authorities might put them in books to yeah. share with us uh, out of their own kind of generational uh, interest. But uh, I, you know. Having lived a while myself and gone to some general conferences, um, I can't say that I heard Jay Golden Kimball stories incessantly in general conference, but I heard them considerably more often in my youth than I do now in general truth. That's true. I think that I think that's true. And if you want to read more, there's a great book. Father's Day is coming up. Christmas for grandfather, grandpa. Not like that, you're going to be able to get signed by the author. You've got it right back there. There's a little basket next to those books. Uh, there's a special Miller Eccles price of $20. Make it easy for you. You don't have to make change. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.